I came up during that lean-in era, and I really did believe that if I just asked the right way, I would get the things that I wanted without really zooming out and saying, why is it set up this way in the first place? Who set it up this way? Who does it benefit? And like, what would it take for us to fundamentally reckon with that? Welcome to the New Rules of Business by Chief. I'm Lindsay Kaplan. And I am Carolyn Childers, and we are the co-founders of Chief, the network of the most powerful women in business. Each episode, we bring in experts to help shed some light on the most complicated questions facing leaders today. And today we've got a doozy. So if you're not a straight cisgender white man, chances are you've experienced the double-edged sword that is likability. Me, unlikable, I could never. (laughs) Okay, fine. Everybody wants to be liked, but I know what you're saying about the double-edged sword. I've personally gotten tons of feedback from bosses on my way up that I need to be more likable, whether that's I come off brash or too headstrong or what have you. Yeah, and I think there may be a trade-off. If I'm a leader, do I have to give something up in order to be liked? Right. If you're too focused on getting people to like you, you could lose the authority you need to command the room. Very Michael Scott. But on the other hand, if you're focused on projecting strength, especially if you're a woman, will everyone think you're just a bitch? Right. And it is possible to be so blandly likable that you actually sand down the edges of everything interesting about you, or worse, everything that makes you a dynamic leader. Carolyn, with all that you need to accomplish as a leader, it's also wild that so much time and energy could go against the idea of, do people like me? Like, I've got shit to do. (laughs) You really do. Okay. So to try to get to the bottom of all of this, today we're talking to journalist, MSNBC host, and author of The Likeability Trap, Alicia Menendez. She spent years researching the two sides of the likability coin and guided us through the many layers of this problem and some potential paths to a solution. Hi, Alicia, and welcome to the new rules of business. So to get us started, uh, do you mind sharing with us a little bit about your background, what you do, and what brought you to the topic of likability as a trap? Sure. Thank you guys so much for having me. So I am a person who cares very much about being well-liked. And that makes sense. I am a cancer. I'm very sensitive. I am a Latina. And as one of the Latinas I interviewed reminded me, we as Latinas are raised with a PhD in graciousness, meaning that we're taught from a very young age that we don't just represent ourselves, that we represent our families, that we represent our entire communities. And I am a woman who was raised in America. And part of what I know is that across cultures, we socialize girls to think of themselves in relation to others, to care about the way that other people think of them. As I started to get into my 30s, I started to think about what that care for likability was costing me, Um, both personally when I would sort of lay my head down at night, but also in terms of how other people evaluated me and my leadership capacity. And I originally imagined myself writing like an eat, pray, love for likability where I would eat gelato and do yoga and learn to care less. (laughs) And what I learned interviewing women was that there are a lot of women like me who care a lot about being well-liked. I would say that probably the majority of women I spoke with. But what was more interesting to me was that even the women who did not give a damn felt that they were 
paying a price for being so brazenly themselves, Mm. especially if they were ambitious, especially if they worked in a male-dominated environment. And that became more interesting to me than this idea of my letting go. Because all of a sudden I imagined, okay, I can learn to care less. And because I am ambitious and have leadership aspirations, I will still be confronted with the expectation that I'm supposed to show up a certain way. And so that that secondary question is really what drove me and drove this work. Can you, just for our listeners, give the pure definition of what you mean when you say the likability trap? Like, what is what does that mean to, to you and to everybody? Yeah, I thought you were going to ask me to define likability. And I was going to tell you that even... Um, <laughs> Like three years into this work, I can't do it because that's part of the challenge with likability is that likability is really subjective. It's the ability to be liked. No. (laughs) Am I? Correct. (laughs) And also a person could walk into the room and I could be like so likable. And then Caroline could be like the worst. And that is just in the eye of the boulder. I actually identify multiple traps. The biggest one is just what we expect of women is warmth, communality, that the women we like sort of have what is in everyone's best interest um, in mind. What we expect of a leader is assertiveness, aggression, and ability to go to the mat. And so what women run up against is this sense that they are either too warm, really well-liked, everybody likes them, not seen as a leader, or they have what it takes to get it done. They are seen as a leader, but in the process of leading, they ruffle feathers. And what's so interesting to me about that is like the vast majority of feedback that women get is critical subjective feedback, meaning that people love to talk to us about how we use our hands and our voice and like whether or not we ought to cut our hair. And that feedback goes in two directions, either that you're too much or not enough. But, and I, I don't know if either of you relate to this, there are a lot of women like myself who've received both sets of feedback in different contexts, which just shows you how subjective and context specific it is. I could not nod my head hard enough at that. <laughs> Why is it that that this happens for women leaders specifically and not for men? Or I would say less so for men. Totally. And I think there is a, a corollary for men, which is that there's an expectation that men will will especially show up in a way that is assertive and aggressive. And so men that are kind and sensitive and maybe every now and you know cry at their desk, they'll face a demerit for that. But it fundamentally comes down to the fact that when we imagine leadership, we imagine men. And not just that we imagine women, but we imagine masculinity or or how we have traditionally defined masculinity. And so our notion of leadership globally is sort of inherently masculine. And that means that a woman who shows up being assertive or aggressive will get dinged. And people will say like, yeah, like maybe she gets it done, but she the way she does it in the process, I just don't like. I mean, I think even if you look at the distinction between uh, male and, and female candidates, there's there's a lot there, right? Which is that it is important for male and female political candidates alike to be well-liked. But part of what we see is that voters are willing to vote for a male candidate if they don't like him so long as they believe that he's competent. That's not the same for women who run for public office. She has to be both well-liked and she has to prove she's competent. And then, of course, in the process of proving that she's competent and talking about all of her qualifications and talking about all of her achievements, she inherently becomes less likable because we're not accustomed to women talking about themselves or asserting their own greatness. I studied business in school, and I remember actually doing a 
case study where half of the class read the exact same thing, but the leader was a woman and half of the class read the exact same case, but the leader was a man. And it was so interesting to just hear how people described what they viewed as the leadership strengths and areas of improvement in both of those cases where it was the exact same situation and the same behavior. It was just a difference in what the name was. Yeah. That to me is the core likability trap. I want to say really quickly, there are there are additional likability traps. I identify the fact that we now talk about authenticity and leadership all the time, but women and people of color are constantly told not to show up as themselves. So there's an inherent tension there around authenticity. And there's also a tension around success. You know, Anyone who is listening to this podcast has watched Sheryl Sandberg's famous TED Talk or read or skimmed Lean In. And so you know that the more successful a woman becomes, the less other people like her just because. Um, And because we're unaccustomed to seeing women succeed at such an uber level that we imagine that they must have done something terrible and horrible in order to ascend to such greatness. What I think that misses, though, is that the success penalty sort of trips you up every step of the way. Like even if you are a recent undergrad who has incredible grades, there was a study that was done where women who had like A's in STEM classes and were applying to STEM jobs were demerited in job applications because people were like, dude, she's got an A in engineering. She must not be very fun. And, you know, you run up against it the first time you ask for a promotion. You run up for it every time you say, I think I'm ready to be put on a stretch assignment. Anytime a woman is advocating for herself to advance in some way, she gets dinged because that's not what we as society expect of women. And women are being dinged by other women, right? This is not like all yeah, men are dinging absolutely. women, but we're we're all dinging one another with likability. Yeah, that is definitely true. And so often the way this shows up is in formal and informal reviews where I, I'm thinking of someone who, to me, she, she sort of had it all. She worked she worked in Silicon Valley. She was ascendant, right? She was one of those people you watch sort of jump a ladder every six months or a year, just super warm and great. And also by virtue of the fact that she kept ascending, clearly had leadership potential. But she had this meeting with a supervisor where they were like, I just need to see you managing your team harder. And she was like, well, are we not getting the results you need? And they're like, no, your results are great. And she was like, well, then why does it matter how I speak to them? Why does it matter? And they like wanted to be CC'd on every email so that they could monitor her tone and make sure that she was being firm enough. And that to me sort of captures the core essence of this, right? Which is if it is impacting the work, if the results suffer, then sure, yes, that type of feedback is warranted and invited. But if it's just sort of a preference for I want to see you showing up as a leader the way that I believe that leaders need to show up, then it's pretty useless feedback. And it takes her away from actually doing her job. And so it's like, what is the trade-off, right? Like you're not talking about hard, instead of talking about hard skills, you're talking about the tone she uses via email. And when she goes to bed at night, she's not thinking about how am I going to get up tomorrow and make sure that my team feels motivated and exceeds all expectations. She's thinking, I wonder if that email that I wrote was firm enough. Like that is just displaced energy that doesn't serve the business or her. Mm. 
No wonder we all stay up at night wondering if we should put exclamation points. <laughs> we have been forced to think about exclamation points in a way that others haven't too. I put so many exclamation, exclamation points, XO, sorry, Smiling. XO, XO, <laughs> whatever. Who cares? Who cares? Yeah. Uh, I think about Whitney Wolf Hurd, who talked a lot about having conversations with people where, you know, women don't want to become entrepreneurs when they see other women being taken down in that way. Do you think that this like fear of not being liked or this expectation of likability is actually stopping people from pushing forward and, and challenging themselves to take on additional responsibility and leadership? It's a fascinating question, one that I have thought about a lot too, and I'm not sure that I have a firm answer. I didn't see that in in the women that I interviewed or the women that I speak with with generally. And I do think that there we will look back and realize that there was an era of of female founders who made us rethink the expectation that we had or the way in which we compared them to other founders, right? That like they were both supposed to be showing up in millennial pink and somehow reimagining capitalism and delivering uh, to their investors all at the same time, right? That's like a triple axle where it's like, I'm not sure who can actually land that. Mm -hmm. But no, I have not seen that. What I see more is a stalling out, right? Where like a lot of women sort of get to the middle and they have done what they needed to do to get to the middle of whatever. You know, this is across industries that they they hit middle management and that is where all of a sudden they begin to feel stuck. And I think part of what that is, is that the tools that have gotten them there, right? Especially if they're a person who who did care about likability and sort of did play the game in that way and did read all of the literature about women in the workplace. What I think we're now realizing about all of all of those books is that they will allow you to survive workplaces that weren't built for you, but they won't allow you to thrive in workplaces that weren't built for you. And what that mm. actually requires is sort of like a, a more radical reimagining of leadership. And I think if you're one of those people who's really lucky, right, where the person at the top of your organizational structure or someone in senior leadership both matches your lived and life experience, matches you demographically, and that person just sort of like does them and blazes that trail, then yes, you can set your skis right behind them. But otherwise, you're left in this netherland of the very skills that have gotten me to this point now seem limiting, right? That people sort of don't see me as having it, even though they can't totally describe what it is. That I think is the greater risk. Yeah. I think there's been a bit of a rejection of this notion of, well, you just have to lean in, right? Like you have to look the part and put on those behaviors. So in your opinion, what does it take to blow up the current path forward into the boardroom? There's both like an immediate way to answer that. And if you're a woman who is about to go into like your annual review, right? Like, let's say that is that is like where most of us are, right? Most of us are not the like Jerry Maguire, here's a memo, you know, torch it piece yet. <laughs> and your boss says to you, Lindsay, you're just you're great, high performer. You're just like, you're just a little too warm that you would ask compared to whom, right? Like you would ask for a comparative point that allows the person who's giving you that review to consider whether or not they would give that feedback to someone else. You can also ask the person, can you draw a line for me between your perception of how I show up 
and how that's impacting the results of my work. Sort of all this emphasis of returning back to a results orientation such that that is what we're focused on rather than style. To your bigger question, I have searched for glimmers of hope in small part because I knew nobody wanted to write a book where someone really detailed the problem and then had no solutions. And I would say, I think one of the best solutions that I've seen actually came out of the 2020 election. And that was Joe Biden had sort of asserted very early on that he was going to pick a woman running mate. And there were all of these big names that were being floated. And I don't know about the two of you, but for me... Throughout my life, I have seen people been asked about their vice presidential aspirations and everyone, men, women, whomever would demure and say like, oh no, I'm so happy serving as X, Y, Z and the president will make, no. All of a sudden, there are all these women and mostly women of color who are saying, yes, I would like to be vice president. And not only would I like to be vice president, let me tell you why I would like to be vice president and why I believe that I am uniquely qualified. But the fact that it wasn't just one person doing that, right? That like it was Stacey Abrams doing that and it was Kamala Harris doing that, all of a sudden normalized that a woman could say, yes, I want something. Yes, I deserve something. Let me make the case for myself. I still sort of feel there was a likability button, which was like, and I'll support whoever gets it. But (laughs) the power in numbers, right? The fact that no one was out there by herself doing it made it normal. And some of that work is going to be on women and people of color and anyone who wants to see just like a more expansive definition of leadership. But but that's what it's going to take is just like really blowing up some of these ideas of what is normal. Yeah. I think the other thing that's happening right now is that there's at least a greater consciousness and awareness even outside of women and people of color, that this is a problem. So for those would-be allies, are there specific best practices that they can put into place? Absolutely. So first, let me just state the obvious. All three of us are white. I am Latina, but I am also white. And one of the number one things I heard from Black women specifically is that very often by identifying a problem at work, they became the problem. Mm. That, you know, they, when they would step up and say, whether it was an experience that they were having or an experience that someone else in the office was having, just the act of calling it out was immediately dubbed overly aggressive, angry, and there's no greater demerit at work for a woman than showing up as angry. Because with men, we assume that when they're angry, it's externally motivated, that they got a flat tire on their way to work, that someone pissed them off. When women are angry, we actually imagine that it's something internal, that they are unhinged and there is something wrong with them. So I start with us because we too have a role to play in allyship, which is that very often black women would go out there and say, I identify a problem. Then people would be like, I don't like the way that you identified the problem. And then the conversation would go sideways where it would become about the way that they brought it up. That is where the onus falls on us to, to step in and say, let's listen. Let's keep our focus on the problem that is being identified to really show up and be partners in that way. Yeah. That note aside, um, sponsorship, I believe, is huge. I think we were all raised to believe that if we found the right mentor, that that would be like a Wizard of Oz where they would pull back the curtain on our career. And mentors are incredible. They're great. I just don't think there's anything for women quite like a sponsor who actually goes to the mat for you, right? There's a difference between someone who speaks with you and someone who speaks about you in rooms where decisions are being made, someone who has a big Rolodex and is willing to leverage that on your behalf. And I say that in a few ways. One, find a sponsor, depending on where you are in your career. 
to become a sponsor. I still think of myself as being early career when I'm approaching mid-career, like it is time for me to sponsor someone. Black women, other women of color are among the most likely to say that they want to sponsor but can't find one. That's in part because there very often isn't another person who matches their life experience in senior leadership. Even when there is, those of us who come from those communities often have a tendency to be like, well, I don't want to sponsor the other Latina because then everyone's going to think that it's just because we're the, you know, like that it wasn't merit-based. I think we have to get over that. And you have to bake sponsorship into an organization. And then the biggest place where this shows up is in reviews. If you're just getting your review from one person, you are invariably getting someone's subjective analysis of the way you show up. If you're getting it from six different people who work directly with you, who all have their own different styles and across the board, everyone is telling you the same thing, that is more valuable feedback to you than just hearing one person's opinion. And so the way that organizations structure feedback is huge. And then the the biggest thing which you both know is like, there has to be investment at the top and there has to be buy-in at the top. Like Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter how many people in you know in the entry level and the middle are are shouting about it if if the person who is making decisions about budgets and resource allocations doesn't actually care then then there will not be the investment that there needs to be i'm talking about likability because that's how we all talk about this but it's fundamentally biased who we like who yep. we don't like why we say that and how we use likability to cover up the fact that what we're really saying is i don't like when women show up this way you just mentioned that example that Black women are often read as aggressive if they're being assertive. Are there other pieces of coded language that leaders should be aware of? This to me is like a thing we can all start, like you can get off the podcast and fix your language today and that will be a step yes. in the right direction. I mean, first you walk through the sort of standard stereotypes we talked about Black women. For Latinas, there's sort of two two different stereotypes, either that we are hardworking, humble, know how to put our head down, which means great worker bees, never someone you actually see as having leadership potential or um, hot, feisty, spicy, Sofia Vergara, someone who like might be really fun at a cocktail party, but you don't take seriously as a leader. And then for Asian women, there's an expectation that they'll be submissive, which means that if you're an Asian or Asian American woman on a team and you try to lead the team, People very often have a visceral reaction to the fact that they're not expecting you to show up in that way. Disability, parenthood, especially motherhood. Motherhood dials up all of the things about us that are perceived as being feminine. And the language is a huge thing because if I describe someone as being indecisive, like I don't want to work with someone who's indecisive. But if I describe that same person as being very deliberate in their decision-making process, then all of a sudden that becomes a team member that I really want. If I um, have someone I describe as being too emotional, are they emotional or are they passionate, invested in what they do? A word that I like catch myself using all the time is helpful, which is meant to be a compliment. But when you describe an entry-level woman as being helpful, people assume that she went and got the cupcakes for someone's birthday, not that she was, you know, doing all of the primary research or that she was the lead point in client contact. So I've tried to supplement saying that someone is helpful by really describing what it is that they do, what it is that they contribute, because that immediately elevates them, right? Okay. But what if you actually don't like somebody? How can you communicate that? I mean, like, because I've now have done so much of this, you know, sometimes my, my husband will, will come to me and be like, I, he's like, I don't want to say that I don't like this person. I'm like, it's okay not to like, 
it is human to like some people and not like others, right? It is human to have styles that complement each other and styles that are always going to be in conflict. I am not suggesting that everyone should like everyone. But what I found helpful with him is that sometimes I'll probe, like, what is it about the person that is showing up for you? And, and really, it's like the thing under the thing that we need to be talking about. And and even then tying it back to results, right? Like, so for example, I'm a pretty low confrontation person. So I find it very challenging when I have someone who likes to do confrontations regularly. And part of what I've learned to say is like, the way that you show up makes it really hard for me to step up. It is hard for me to be an equal partner in this conversation um, because I don't feel that there is space to do that, right? Like that's better than going home every day and being like, that guy's a real jerk. Like it's it's about moving things forward instead of sort of sitting around in, in the discomfort. You also talked earlier about like this idea of authenticity and how it's a buzzword right now, but it's a buzzword that like only certain people have the luxury of actually practicing. Can you talk more about that? I've talked a lot about gender. So so let me talk about some of the other ways this shows up. Like if you are LGBTQ and do you feel comfortable enough at work to have a picture of your partner in your cubicle? Like women, as we age, whether or not our hair is going gray and we choose to color it because we don't want people to be biased against us because we're getting older. You know, if you are a Spanish speaker and you sit next to another Spanish speaker at work, like, do you choose to speak Spanish to each other? Or do you sort of make a path that you're not going to speak Spanish to each other because you don't want to draw attention to yourself or other self? Like just... And instead of calling upon people to show up as their full authentic selves, I think workplaces need to be thinking like, have we done enough to create the safety so that people know they can show up as their full selves and be welcomed and embraced? And that's, I think that's more complicated than we act like it is, right? Like it's not just about feeling like you can microwave your leftovers and and have people like not ask you strange questions about what they are. That's like, how much of people do you want showing up in the workplace? Like how much of people's other life are you actually interested in accommodating? Mm-hmm. I, I think COVID has, has like also really laid that bare, right? Where it's like everyone's lives are intermixed with their work and you see a certain amount of like how much of the work can get done with all the life happening around it. Absolutely. And I know you mentioned mothers being coded differently. And I'm a mom. I've experienced it firsthand. I'd honestly love to see the research on what it's like for dads because I feel like it's an entirely different ballgame. Oh, wait, I can give it to you. A mom and a dad, both at work, um, crashing on a big project. They get a call from their kid's school that they've like vomited at the playground. If a woman decides to go rush off to get her kid, then she is seen by the other team members as not really being a good teammate and um, putting her kids first. And if she stays, people think she's a monster because she hasn't fulfilled her maternal duties and prioritized her child. If a man stays, people think, wow, he is so committed to the team. And if he leaves, people are like, what a great dad. (laughs) For mothers, it's lose-lose. And for fathers, it's win-win. That's not to say that dads don't run up against their own stuff. But like your instinct there or your personal experience, you're not alone. You talk a little bit about kind of the 
success trap as well, that the few women that make it to those positions of true leadership, oftentimes they come in at like these moments of of crisis or, you know, they're kind of given those projects that are almost set up to fail in some ways. So can you talk a little bit about like what that success trap actually looks like? I think at least now we have a name that we've put to that glass cliff right? Like the idea that in in all of a sudden these perilous moments, a woman suddenly ascends to leadership. I do think that the women I have interviewed and spoken with are much savvier about the opportunities that come before them and much more willing to sort of either not to pass. I think that's that's part of this that's like the baked in challenge, right? No one passes on that. But to mm-hmm. be to do a much better job sort of managing what the expectation and what the vision of success looks like, right? That it's like if you are doing a turnaround job, that there has to be clarity around the fact that like it will not be an overnight success, that there will be growing pains, um, and that the measure of success has to be modulated accordingly. Yeah. But like, I think here's the thing about like a lot of this stuff that a lot of your smartest questions is like, we're in it. Yeah. Like, like we don't know what the other side of a lot of this stuff looks like yet because, because truly we're talking about a handful of examples and then millions of women trying to extrapolate out from them. Well, what do we need men to extrapolate? Do we actually need to stop talking about likability for women? And should we focus on men trying to be more likable? Should should men start thinking about exclamation points? I think just like m- men get to show up in a wide variety of ways, with the exception of being criers. Like that's basically the only thing that is still off limits for male leaders. And it shouldn't be. They should be allowed to cry. But what what I'm pushing towards is like an expansive vision of leadership. What can an individual man do? An individual man can become a sponsor, can think about the language that he uses, can reanalyze the way that he gives feedback to his employees across the board. He can make sure that the organization he works for has like a really robust feedback system. And then even, you know, someone said this to me, it seems so simple, but like every now and then in a meeting, going around the room and asking someone for their opinion, asking someone to weigh in or creating the space for people to do that as one DNI person said to me, like, they've seen the light go on in someone when they're asked mm-hmm. what their opinion is. And I think in the interest of expediting our work, sometimes it's easy to skip those steps. But that's what it looks like in part to create space for people to really show up. But like none of this is going to be done at an individual level. That that's it. It's like we can all make yeah. we can all control, we control and make those minor improvements. But really it has to be done organizationally. And does groups. Yeah. I just want to put this out there. I feel like until there is an overwhelming amount of women in power, we will be trapped in this likability issue until we actually start thinking about leadership in a very different way that isn't crafted against what a traditional white man sounds like. It's why we did what we did when we started Chief, why we focused on senior executive women. There's, you know, 5 million women who are VP level or above. And just instead of trying to fix every rung of the ladder, how do you get more of those women into positions of true leadership where that collective can, you know, set a new paradigm of what 
leadership actually looks like instead of everybody having to do it on an individual basis. Yeah. And I, and I think sort of one of the corollaries for women who may not be at that level yet is, is like having a WhatsApp chat or a text thread with people who are lateral to you in their careers, who sort of see you and get you and root for you, but also like will tell you the truth mm-hmm. and understand the things that you need to improve and work on to whom you can come back with these interactions, these happenings and say to them, am I missing something here? Right? Like I, I think having a group that you can bounce things off of is just fundamentally necessary to having an ascendant career because it otherwise you're just out there like an island by yourself. Yeah. Strength in numbers. Completely strength in numbers. So are you optimistic? Like, do you feel like there's movement in the right direction? Um, or are we just constantly changing the problem? Oh, the fundamental question. Okay. I <laughs> so like I, I want to be clear. I don't think likability is like the thing, like the one thing that is holding women back. I've thought so much during this entire pandemic about what this has revealed about childcare and the role that childcare plays um, for working parents of all varieties, right? And how it's like, we, we have a failed system. Women will not be able to advance at work so long as there is not reliable, affordable, accessible childcare. I say that to say there are so many pieces of this advancement conversation that anytime it gets distilled to one thing, I like lose my mind Mm -hmm. because we're all smart enough to realize that's not how it's going to happen. What I think is interesting about likability or the reason I have come back to this is that when our moms were growing up, and they were contending with sexism. They were contending with a very overt form of sexism. They were contending with a form of sexism where it's like you now would be able to go to the HR department and say, you know, this person said this to me and in these days they'd be fired. It is not that sexism has gone away. It is not that racism or xenophobia or any of these isms have gone away. They've just become much more subtle in the way they are communicated, especially in professional spaces. Where it becomes nefarious is that it's so subtle that it then becomes harder to call out. And so so to me, it's like it is about making what is covert overt. It is about actually naming these things because I only feel like once you name them and say this is a thing that is happening, can you actually get to the work of moving forward? So no, like if we blew past the likability conversation, it is not as though then all the problems would be solved for women and they'd be completely ascendant. We'd have women leaders everywhere. But it is a piece of the puzzle that there's no policy for. Like this isn't about Congress making a decision. This is a combination of lots of individual people making a decision that they're not going to communicate and transpose bias in this way, and that they're going to push their workplaces to to really mean it when they say that they welcome inclusive leadership. I know we're we're towards the end of your time. I do want to ask you what we've been asking all of our guests which is twofold. The first is, what is the best piece of leadership advice you've ever received? Okay. I don't know this is a piece of advice that I have received, but it's a thing that I have experienced. I used to have a tendency to come into a new situation like a wrecking ball, to just be like, all right, guys, I'm here. Like It's a new day. Let's go. And that does not work. 
like I have learned that when you are new to an organization or new to a team that you that you plan to lead, that sitting back and taking a moment to meet everyone, to learn the culture of the place, to get everyone's input on what is happening, all of that data collection and person to person, which for a doer like myself can feel like you are not getting to the doing fast enough is mission critical. Mm. And that carries through throughout, right? It's like constantly be checking in with people, constantly taking the pulse of where people are and adjusting accordingly. What about the counter side of that, which is the worst piece of leadership advice you've ever received? I've gotten so much bad leadership advice that I can't, I don't even know that I could do that. But here's what I will say, which is I used to think that it was incumbent upon me to take every piece of advice that was given to me. And I think what happens when you do that is you become a completely discombobulated, misaligned human being and leader. And so in terms of the conversation about best advice, worst advice, no advice is good advice if you don't know what your priorities are as a leader, if you don't know what it is that you value and what it is that you want to bring, because all advice should be filtered through that lens. And one of the greatest points of growth for me personally has been learning to say, thank you so much for that advice. And then knowing whether or not it was something to sear into my brain or to discard immediately. Yeah. I often think now that we're a little bit more senior in our careers and we are often like the advice giver, like I am like kind of appalled at how much when I was younger, I just like listened to everything everybody said. And you realize now you're like, oh, they don't know. <laughs> they, don't, they don't have all the answers. I will listen. There might be some things that are like applicable, but the advice givers are not always the most qualified. So taking everyone's advice, not the place to go. <laughs> I just never listened. <laughs> but that's the thing, like, Lindsay, like, the, like, I get that about you. Like, that is super clear. I just think like more people are like me and Carolyn, where they're like, okay, yeah, sure, I'll go do that. And then it's like, you're like running off in the wrong direction while Lindsay is on the exact right path, continuing to keep it moving. I mean, Lindsay's that's, waving like, her freak flag, not getting anything done, to be fair. <laughs> the double-edged sword. This was wonderful. We so appreciate your time. This is such a common conversation at Chief. And it's a common conversation that Carolyn and I have had as leaders, just the paranoia of wanting to be liked and to make sure we're not seen as bitches. And and that kind of credibility wobble that comes with being too well-liked. And I just love how you distilled it in such a way that I think made me want to trash any doubt I've ever had around that entire topic. Bitches get stuff done. Mm. <laughs> so good. Well, that was Alicia Menendez, MSNBC host and author of The Likeability Trap. I'm going to wear a bitches get stuff done t-shirt to work. <laughs> Honestly, that might make you more likable. I know. But seriously, Carolyn, even though I know there's no grand solution for this, except, you know, waiting for culture to catch up, I was encouraged that she had so many ideas for how to navigate that trap in the short term. Yeah. Like on an individual level, when you get subjective feedback, you can just ask, compared to whom? And you can be mindful of the language you use, especially when you're describing the working style of someone from a marginalized community. 
And sponsorship. What Alicia said about the distinction between someone who will show you the ropes and someone who'll go to the mat for you and leverage their power, that's huge. And I want to start doing more of that. And on an institutional level, the idea of 360 reviews, so simple, but it's also so crucial for employees to get more than one person's feedback. But Carolyn, speaking of feedback, I feel like we haven't solved my big question. Do you like me? Linz, I do like you. Okay, cue the music. We're out. Problem solved. That's all for this episode of The New Rules of Business by Chief. You can find us on LinkedIn, or if you're interested in joining the Chief Network, apply to be a member at chief.com. We'll be taking a little holiday break before our next episode, but we'll be back on your feed in January. Thanks to Sharon Yee, Courtney Conley, Katrina Conan and Real, Blaine Edens, and Gabriella Margarino at Chief. And to our production team pod people, Rachel King, Matt Sav, Amy Machado, Andy Bosnack, Madison Lesby, Michelle O'Brien, and Veronica Simonetti. Our music is by Colin Hatch. I'm Carolyn Childers. And I'm Lindsay Kaplan. Thanks for listening.